Negotiators, a production of Doha Debates and Foreign Policy. I'm your host, Jen Williams. Today, we're covering the war in Yemen. It's had a devastating impact on the more than 30 million people there, with close to 400,000 dead and 40% of the population on the brink of starvation. This makes it one of the world's worst humanitarian crises, according to the UN. But right now, there's a chance of a peace agreement in Yemen, particularly because Saudi Arabia and Iran, which back opposing sides in the war, resumed diplomatic ties earlier this year. Saudi Arabia severed relations with Iran a year or so after the war in Yemen began. On today's show, we'll cover what exactly this nine-year conflict is about. We'll talk to local mediators about how they have advanced the peace process, and we'll learn what it would take to end the war and have a lasting peace in Yemen. So first, what is the war in Yemen? At a basic level, it's a war between an armed group called the Houthis and a Saudi-backed coalition. The Houthis, also known as Ansar Allah, are backed by Iran. And in 2014, the Houthis took over Yemen's capital, Sana'a, in a violent coup. Saudi Arabia, along with allies in the Gulf and the West, have tried to take out the Houthis by force ever since. But it's also a civil war between the North and the South. The Houthis control the capital and the North, and government forces, supported by the Saudi coalition, operate from the South. Farah al-Muslimi, a Gulf regional expert at Chatham House, explains the damage from the fighting and what will be needed to repair it. Unfortunately, hundreds of thousands of people have died, um, whether of a direct consequences of the war or indirect consequences. It has left around 5 million Yemeni children outside of school so far, which is pretty horrifying when you think about the future of Yemen. And among that, it has left a broken country, it has left broken institutions. So this needs a lot of commitment, financial and economic support from the international community, but also specifically from the Gulf. You cannot only demonstrate your commitment to Yemen by bombing Yemen. That is not possible and that is unacceptable. You know, as you say in American Walmarts, uh, you break it, you own it. The Gulf has broken Yemen with this war. So there must be a responsibility and with the help of the United States and the United Kingdom and the West. The bottom line is that Yemen is going to need lots of international help for reconstruction. One key element to negotiating a peace agreement in Yemen are prisoner exchanges between the Houthis and the government forces. Women mediators have been particularly effective at negotiating prisoner exchanges. Farah al-Muslimi, who you just heard from, has said that, quote, Yemeni women have released more prisoners than all the UN envoys combined, end quote. So we talked to one of the most successful prisoner swap negotiators in Yemen, Maeen al-Obaidi. My involvement in exchange of prisoners was due to the struggle of students, workers, employees, ordinary people who were arrested while they were trying to travel on these dangerous roads. Maeen al-Obaidi is a human rights lawyer who says she has personally mediated hundreds of prisoner exchanges between Houthis and pro-government forces. 
She's also represented clients on both sides of the conflict. So Mayne thinks each group respects her and sees her as neutral. So in early 2016, the first file uh, regarding prisoner swap that I handled, the uh, official from one side did not uh, allow providing the list of prisoners unless I was personally there. My colleagues, of course, and I, we are all have a respectful position in our societies. I, uh, We know these people on both sides from before. We won their trust because of this previous relationship, but also because we have our uh, presence and our weight in the society. Uh, in our culture, sometimes when somebody did not give, uh, one side did refuse to give a list or reply, respond with a, a recipro- reciprocate to the list from their side, I would intervene in person and uh, be the personal, uh, put my personal guarantee for one side with the other in order to allow for the passage of these lists. I would say that this is very important and that I would personally uh, guarantee it. So uh, it was a part of our role to enhance this type of uh, trust uh, and build it uh, gradually between those sides through us and our position in our society. She specifically mediates prisoner swaps in her home city of Taiz in southwestern Yemen. Taiz is a contested place, so it's seen a lot of conflict. I live in a city that was deeply affected by the war. Uh, it was sieged by, it was besieged from all sides. I had to take personally long trips to visit my family. And during those trips, I saw sick people, people with cancer and kidney failures, traveling long and very hard distances to uh, get health care. In addition to other issues that came up during the war, such as prisoners and uh, several outcomes of the siege as uh, well as uh, the war. Um, For me, I had already been working with several political sides um, since 2011, and they know me. I have relationships with people on both sides who eventually became officials and leaders on either side. So it was for me more uh, as an investment in those relationships. You know, I know uh, you mentioned having to travel yourself on these roads that were often closed to see your family. If you could just kind of explain a little bit about that when the war broke out, um, if I have it right, I believe your family had to flee from Taiz and you chose to stay behind. Is that correct? So due to the war, my house was located in an area that was close to clashes. It was, in fact, bombed. Uh, so we had, uh, we, I, dis- I was displaced and I moved with my family to one of my uh, siblings to live with them, uh, my mother and my daughter, who was only one year old at the time. Uh, eventually, they had to leave after for safety 
to the to uh, our home village, uh, which used to be which used to be one hour away by car, but the closure made it much longer. I needed to st to stay in ties for work uh, because I documented the human rights violations uh, in the area. Uh, but at uh, almost weekly or every 10 days, I would have to travel to see my daughter and my family long distances. What uh, used to take me 10 minutes by car sometimes would take me a whole day or 10 hours, including walking through from one uh, location to the other. It was very difficult to find transportation. This difficult situation continued, lasted for a, at least three years until a route on the western side of the city was uh, opened and clashes calmed down. So we tried to relocate and stay uh, in safety. Despite her personal sacrifices, she was dedicated to freeing people from detention. She describes how these negotiations typically take place. Negotiation sessions on prisoners uh, take a very long time. We meet separately uh, with each party. Each side has uh, a designated person that takes charge of the uh, portfolio of the um, missing people or the political prisoners, for example. And we have to meet with them in specific. Sometimes it takes a long time to find availabilities, not just with the officials. Sometimes we are also busy doing other things and working on other issues. Where we meet, we meet at their at their councils, at their offices, sometimes in cafes. We take every chance we can to meet with those designated persons. Every side usually bring, prepares a list of the people, the ones that they have in, in their custody, and a list that they believe is in the custody of the other side. For example, the government would give us uh, two lists, would prepare two lists, one with the names of uh, Ansarullah's um, members who are arrested or incarcerated in their jails, and a list of people they believe are incarcerated, of their uh, people incarcerated with Ansarullah, and the other party does the same. Negotiators or the local mediators, we take uh, these lists and we deliver them on uh, to the other side. Each side then takes time to study those lists. They add their own names sometimes, and uh, sometimes they include people who are either dead or missing. This hinders the talks for a very long time sometimes. Not just uh, this issue, we are also challenged with the travel restrictions and the uh, dangerous uh, circumstances on the roads. When these lists uh, are modified by each party, we find some stubbornness and we have to deal with different opinions regarding who is providing what information in terms of accuracy and detecting people. Sometimes this includes uh, long negotiations to trust uh, that the, uh, the information is trustworthy or valid or not. This uh, was 
based on the fact that both sides did not have any trust between them. For local negotiators, local mediators, uh, it took us a very long time to build this kind of trust that would allow each uh, side to provide trustworthy and valid information to the other. This is in a nutshell what I can tell you about the way we work. She then shares several prisoner exchange stories that stood out to her, including a relative of hers who was detained by the Houthis. One story is that of a relative, a child who was 14 years old. From uh, He was traveling from the city to the village on his school break. Uh, I don't want to mention he was arrested by uh, one party. I don't want to mention which one it is, but he stayed for three years. His family, unfortunately, during those uh, years had to flee the country. Finally, after three years of working uh, on keeping him uh, on the list and he was released. Another story is that of another young man who was 17 years old. He was arrested while he was trying to go get groceries for his uh, home. He disappeared. He went out to buy groceries, but he disappeared also for three years. The only thing we knew about his fate uh, after a while was where he was arrested, which jail he was put in. But when he was released, he told stories about torture. His situation was unstable. Uh, He did not have access to a toilet, to a bathroom. And he was kept in a room with a group of insane individuals. And then he was released uh, to another room where he spent time with a dead body. He was in a very difficult condition when he uh, was released. It was very traumatic for him. He needs a lot of attention and rehabilitation. But this is also why we push so hard for those prisoner releases. You just heard from Maeen Al-Obeidi, a human rights lawyer and prisoner swap negotiator. Next, we're going to hear from a local Yemeni mediator who explains what he believes it will take to build peace in Yemen and what international diplomats often get wrong. And then we're going to find out more about the current talks between the Houthis and Saudi Arabia. More on all of that after the break. Welcome back to The Negotiators, a production of Doha Debates and Foreign Policy. I'm Jen Williams. Before the break, we learned about the complexities behind the Yemen civil war, the divisions between the North and South, between the Houthis and the government forces, between Saudi Arabia and its allies against the Houthis, which are supported by Iran, and beyond all of those rivalries, the huge humanitarian crisis. Now, we're going to talk to someone who's facilitated unofficial peace talks in Yemen. In other words, not with politicians. We wanted to understand what's needed to bring peace there. And then we're going to hear about the current talks between the Houthis and the Saudis, and what the chances are that they might succeed. At the beginning, we heard from Farah al-Muslimi, a Yemen expert from Chatham House. Before Chatham House, Farah actually co-founded a think tank in Yemen 
called the Sana'a Center for Strategic Studies back in 2014. He saw a significant information gap about Yemen while he was working as a fixer for international news outlets. There was just basically, there's nothing on Yemen being said by Yemenis. And the conversations on Yemen has always been, oh, what does Yemen mean for Iran? What does Yemen mean for Al-Qaeda? What does Yemen mean for Iraq war? What does Yemen mean for Aramco security? Which is, you know, you take a deep breath. That's the destiny my country is to be thought about from anything except from its own lenses. Um, And aside from that being insulting and hurtful, it actually also has been bad. It has created the wrong information. It has created bad policies. It has been uninformed and it has been unauthentic policies mostly. The Sana'a Center conducts research about Yemen and they do policy briefs for groups like the UN to help them better understand the realities on the ground. What we noticed is there wasn't much of people who are trying to solve Yemen war, aside from the UN. And when it did, it was probably, we shouldn't be judgmental, I would say, uninformed, misinformed. Um, It's an international organization with its own bylaws and rules and copy-based. And the international multilateral system is really a kid with a special need. You don't give up on educating them. You just change your ways, you know, use a photo, simplify it over. So having a Yemeni eye around, you know, who is always saying, no, 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 this is not how this should go. This is actually how this should happen. We found that to be useful in a way, it, especially of what we can do. We are able to talk to the Yemenis. The Yemenis talk to us very differently than they would talk to the U.S. envoy or to the U.N. envoy. They also help facilitate informal peace talks called Track 2 Talks. And so Farah al-Muslimi is not only a research expert, he has also been involved in these Track 2 Talks himself. Though he wouldn't describe himself as a mediator exactly. The way I deal with local Yemenis, from any side really, I never thought of myself as a mediator, ever. Um, And I probably, God forbid, will never do. But what I always thought I am in dealing with these folks is a psychiatrist, really. Um, I'm trying to understand, I'm trying to listen, what is their worries, what is their fears, and I think any good mediator is a psychiatrist, first and foremost. Farah says it's much easier for the Houthis, for example, to lie to a diplomat than to him. In Yemen, we kill each other, but we make sure we show up to each other's weddings and funerals. Accountability in Yemen, uh, contrary to the West, is extremely unwritten rules and has to do with concepts like shame and honor and instead of uh, right and wrong, legal versus not legal. And this, you know, makes the local actors treat you differently. You know, if a Houthi, let's say, lies to the UN envoy, they're not afraid. What will the UN envoy do? You know, will he sanction him? He can sanction him. Aslan, he never leaves Yemen. Will the United States of America, is their assets? Sure, they still have their cash under the bag, you know, under the bed. They never have a bank account. While if he does similar thing to me, um, he will have a problem in even getting married, in being disowned by his cousin, 
you know, if he broke, this is an unwritten rules and the different rules of engagement that gives you a little bit more of a space as much as obviously gives, makes you also weaker in a different way. But it is a space in its own self. Farah then shares two particularly interesting stories of track two talks that he helped to facilitate. The first involved cot. It's a green leaf that you chew. Cot is a stimulant that feels like a strong cup of coffee mixed with euphoria. People, especially men, often chew cot in social gatherings, and many informal talks take place over cot chews. One of my Yemeni colleagues used to say, you know, for me as a Yemeni, track two is a bunch of Yemenis chewing cut, except someone is taking notes and there is a woman representation in the room. These car shoes, which uh, if I translate it to someone in DC, I would say this is Yemeni's happy hour. You know, I don't get business with them in their offices. Actually, not at all. Um, maybe we go there to take a photo every now and then. But if you do really want to get business, you have to have that informal conversation. Farah ended up bonding with a Houthi over Kot about an important ship that was about to become an environmental disaster. The Safar FCO ship in the Red Sea, which was a massive ship, has been there for many years. It's about to explode and it's under the Houthi control and it can destroy the entire uh, Yemeni coast and the Red Sea and would have a spillover. It would have been the biggest environmental catastrophe in history, even after uh, even bigger than the Nixon's one uh, in the United States many decades ago. It was a really a nightmare in many ways. And obviously, when this started to come into the attention in Sana'a Center in 2000, I believe, 17, we did what we did, which is wrote about it, made an editorials about it, and then we started the proposing frameworks and policy memos to the UN, to others, on how we think that they should approach this, uh, this catastrophe. And... Obviously, which is I'm very lucky, one of the very few people I still can get into uh, Sana'a and out safely and across other front lines in Yemen. So I took a plane to Sayoun and then I drove 24 hours all the way to Sana'a. Farah already knew the guy. And when I got into Sana'a, I found that um, the guy who was the chef negotiator of the Houthis, or the, the head of negotiation committee on this, is someone I used to um, read his poetry in high school. He's my age. I, we used to exchange poetry on online forms. I still remember his poetry, memorize it by heart. He's a, a horrible Houthi today, but he's a fantastic poet. So I, I get into Sana'a, and uh, I find he's the new guy in town, basically, and, and the chef of it. Um, and I did what uh, I recommended the UN envoy to do picked up my favorite cat and uh, uh, showed up to his diwan. And we spoke for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And this is why I say, like, why they would talk to you differently. So this is another example than they would talk to the others. And then, I mean, we obviously rebounded. We started, did nothing. We just talked about poetry for the next six hours um, over green leaves of cat. Toward the end, Farah started to get the fuller picture about the ship. I understood by that time, by the end, the Houthi game actually was this is a military weapon for them. They really thought that if the troops of the Saudis and their allies move a little bit further 
are closer to us, we are going to explode this. So obviously they will never tell that to the UN and they will never tell it to me directly. But until by the end, you know, because I'm saying, look, this solution can work. And he's like, no. I'm like, how about this? And he's like, no. And I'm like, how about that third middle ground? And he's like, not on my dead body. I'm like, what, what about the EU negotiate? He's like, um, no, the UN is not uh, neutral. So immediately to me, I added one plus one. I'm like, huh, that's actually your game. You don't even want to solve it right now. And there is, you want to keep that. So honestly, I stopped working on it for air. Farah then suggested a different approach. What I thought should be done by that time is to actually end the military or decrease the military hostilities uh, totally around this area so that in the long term it will change the Houthis' map of this. And that's what actually happened. Is as soon as they were sure, one year later, two years later, that they have a deal with the Saudis, this is no more a front line, because they also badly wanted this to be solved, actually. They didn't want it to not be solved. But they were, again, and they are suicidal in a way, they really are. They, they weren't, you know, it was a big military game. And not just that, as soon as their other military capabilities improved, they didn't need this card anymore at all. So it is that understanding, I think, obviously after, and this took a lot of God knows how many green leaves and how many hours of poems to come into that conclusion. But to me, it was the basic sense of peacemaking. Peacemaking is also sometimes anything except about the ship and the conversation. And it was about not talking about ship or anything that made ultimately made me gain trust. Another big thing Farah helped the UN with was relationship mapping. You underestimate, especially in local context, the entire background, the entire connections and relationships between these people themselves. And this comes from an awareness also that no one can force peace on anyone. No one can. So you in the room or not in the room is not going to make a godly difference. Farah's other track two story was actually around banking, which became a big mess with the war. This story I know very well was in... 2017, actually, it was, and I'm able to say this because by now, none of the governors of central banks are there in their jobs anymore or in the mediation. There was a big conflict, you know, about the central bank of Yemen. It's a divided until today, and it's uh, horrendous, and it has led into two different financial policies, but almost splitting the countries. By that time, the UN was trying to bring the two governors together in Amman, in Jordan for any deal between the two of them. And it was a marathon. They tried, they tried, they tried until they brought them into Jordan. But in fact, little research, do you know that these two governors were actually high school friends and they used to study for college together? I was like, what? They were like, yeah, they were in the same major. So totally, I changed my strategy. Instead of trying to support how the UN should work or getting them into the UN, and having that conversation. I was in Amman by that time, and uh, by coincidence, actually, I wasn't planning to do it, to be there. And um, uh, basically the UN didn't manage to, you know, they brought them to Amman, but they did not manage to make them meet face to face at all, actually. And I know them both individually. They really want this to work. 
I and others um, spoke to them separately, people who knew them, all Yemenis actually, there was no international involved on that. We said, um, you know, what about you meet together um, uh, individually alone and not under the UN process and in a place so discreet and you just talk, do whatever you got to do, do whatever you talk and so on. Uh, I mean, I'm simplifying hours and days and nights of conversations. Believe it or not, 48 hours after they left the UN conversations in Amman, they both landed back in Amman, actually. Um, and they really wanted to have this conversation without being interrupted or without being it. Because also there is a problem when you have a formal process. And that's what I find greatly the benefit of a track too. When you have a formal process, it's almost not allowed to fail. And no one likes to not have the right to fail. So they wanted to meet alone, but they had a problem. They had nowhere safe to meet in Amman. So Farah called a friend. And uh, <laughs> there was a diplomat by then. She was a Western ambassador. She had a giant villa in Amman. Uh, she remains probably my favorite diplomat in the history of Yemen. Um, and she had a fantastic terrace I always used there to see her or to have some meetings. And I said... I need your terrace. <laughs> and uh, she said, what do you mean? I said, I need your terrace. Can you take a weekend off and go to the Dead Sea to enjoy it, uh, the time? But, and uh, she said, well, you know, you might get me fired, but <laughs> really meant it. Because, of course, this is also the poison of political correctness of diplomats. No one wants to do anything that looks like outside the UN, obviously. So she's like, you, know, you might get me fired and interrupted, but I have seen you and I trust this. And if you think this is for Yemen, then that's a very cheap price. She really had that attitude and it was helpful. Good for her. <laughs> Fantastic, really. It's telling yeah. it's a rare, rare, rare quality. So literally, they, uh, she left and then, you know, the guys came, they had shisha. The two of them outside, and then they came into there. I saw them. Um, basically, I gave them tea, some water from the fridge, uh, made myself home, and made them home, and left. I literally did nothing. I left. I left. You know. I said, look. Uh, I mean, I had to say, uh, my honor. This is a trust, and I really hope uh, you know that you do something for Yemenis and I trust in you and you think uh, you know this is something I know that I have dealt with you alone each that and I know that this is a deeply inside you and I'm not going to claim I care more than you care or I understand this more than you actually do or that uh, I'm not going to tell you also why you should trust each other come on you studied for college together literally and left and I did nothing else and obviously they didn't solve by that time, the central bank issue, but they did have a huge agreement in which they neutralized one of the biggest banks in Yemen, actually. And they really stopped that bank from collapsing forever. And wow. it really, yeah, 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 yeah. And it was just, that's what I meant is where, you know, turn the lights off and f off. <laughs> that's a great, I'm going to put that on a bumper sticker. That's a great slogan. So why are we sharing these two sort of long stories? Well, beyond the fact that Farah is knowledgeable and quite funny, there are lessons here about how to do diplomacy in Yemen. 
which is going to need a lot of it, even if this Houthi-Saudi deal comes through. First, and I wish this was more obvious in almost any conflict, but Yemenis themselves are often going to mediate these conflicts better than any outside diplomat. Second, things take a lot of time in Yemen. It requires listening, trust, and a deep understanding of how the various players are related to each other. And third, and this one will be a hard one for the international mediators to swallow, but sometimes you just won't be able to be in the room for something to work. And that's hard. No notes, no documentation. But maybe more conflicts would be resolved this way. Right now, the chances for peace in Yemen have maybe never been higher. In September, the Houthis met with the Saudis in the Saudi capital, Riyadh, for the first time since the war began. And Farah says this was significant. So that meeting happened after years and years and years of back and forth. And then that is what led to the recent breakthrough that hopefully soon will actually be capitalized on. They started talking finally about things that matter. Okay, how are we going to open roads? How are we going to open airports? How are we going to pay salaries for Yemenis? The salaries of the public service, which has not been paid for more than six years by now, for probably 1.3 million Yemenis. We're going to uh, release all the prisoners, all for all, a prisoner swap exchange, and a bunch of other things that actually were really good for Yemenis um, in many ways. And there was a major breakthroughs, I, I believe, in these kind of meetings between the Saudis and the Houthis. And I definitely hope that for Yemen, 2023 will end better than the year uh, before. Inshallah. There was a plan or there was hopes that by the end of 2023, we would have reached some sort of a larger agreement between the different sides. But obviously, the developments in the region has put everything good into pause, unfortunately. But that's where we are at the moment. Now, since the war in Gaza started, the Houthis have launched a number of missiles and drones toward Israel, putting the talks on hold with Saudi Arabia. I still would like to go to bed thinking that is on hold rather than stopped. And I really hope so. And I think uh, depending on how things get over in the Gaza war and how much that save, uh, spares Yemen or doesn't, we will see how it goes the next few weeks. You just heard from Farah El-Muslimi, a Gulf regional expert at Chatham House and co-founder of the Sana'a Center for Strategic Studies. The Negotiators is a partnership between Doha Debates and Foreign Policy. Our production team includes Rob Sachs, Ashley Westerman, Rosie Julin, Claudia Tady, Jafit Weeks, Jigar Mehta, Amjad Atala, and Dan Efron. Laura Rosprautellum is the show's senior producer. Thanks to Nella Farhidayat, Govinda Clayton, and James Wally for helping create the show. Special thanks this week to Fatima Abdul Karim, who interpreted Maeen's interview. Foreign Policy is a magazine of news and ideas from around the world. And we encourage you to subscribe. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe. Doha Debates is a production of Qatar Foundation, where the most urgent issues of our time are discussed and debated. 
Tune in at DohaDebates.com. Next week on the show, our final episode of the season, we hear from one of the most famous negotiation experts in the world, William Urey. He's the co-author of one of the ultimate guides to negotiation called Getting to Yes. He also co-founded Harvard's program on negotiation, and he's out soon with a new book all about geopolitical conflicts. It's all about trust. Who did President Trump trust? He trusted his daughter. Who did Kim trust? He trusted his sister. That episode, next week on The Negotiators. I'm Jen Williams.